Hi, and welcome to Match Cut, a movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. What's up? Not much. This episode's matchup is built on secrecy, subterfuge, and making the best of a bad situation on and off the battlefields of World War II. Prepare your best German accent, or don't. Chew some gravel and grow at that five o'clock shadow for Where Eagles Dare versus Kelly's Heroes. So, what was your experience with these two movies before watching for the podcast? So, the first time I saw Where Eagles Dare, I can't remember exactly what got me to watch it other than like my dad talking about it at one point but i rented it right Mm -hmm. and so as i'm renting i'm watching it. it's getting towards the end of the movie and you know i've been watching a long movie as 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 you and i watched it and then my dad walks in like right at the uh, at one scene uh in the in the castle where burton and schaefer are confronting the table and he's like or or no, it was it was something earlier. I think it was when like they radio back and he's like, so such and such is such and such. And I'm like, you just spoiled the movie for me. <laughs> like, why would you say that? It's just like, well, now here's a few hours of my life. I'm not getting back. Right. I just had to have a conversation with my mom about uh, Formula One spoilers because she's been like emailing me or texting me like some articles it basically spoiled the end of the race and she hasn't done it yet. But I, I told her like one time you're going to do this. I'm not going to have watched the race and I'd appreciate it if you didn't. Oh, my dad has done stuff like that plenty of times. The first Formula One race I ever fucking watched was 2012 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. I was getting off work early and I was telling him I'm going over to Kurt's house to watch this race. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, I hear that's a good one. Blank won the race. <laughs> Why would you tell me that? I haven't watched it. <laughs> Rip headphones, juniors are right there. <laughs> like, I know my mom has the best intentions of like, hey, I'm interested in something you're interested in, or like, I'm sharing your interests, but. That's not how you do it, though. <laughs> it's not like, you know, ma- magically, uh, the, the Avengers Infinity War, I, I waited months. I really didn't care to see it. Mm-hmm. And when I saw it, I wasn't spoiled on anything. Yeah. People, like, random-ass people respected me more than my own parents have. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, spoiler alert for these two movies. We're definitely talking about the ending. I mean, inherently, there is a spoiler alert in everything we talk about. Uh, you know, yeah. Also, get over it. These movies are from 1968 <laughs> and 1971 or 1970. I figure if we do anything less than like if if the stars align and two movies come out in theaters that are almost the same, we'll do an official spoiler alert there. But yeah, these are old, old movies well past the uh, even the most liberal spoiler warning. Right. These are, uh, in a sense, our examples. So, yeah, that was that uh, Kelly's Heroes. What I think I just knew of it. From like uh like talking or reading about Mash and stuff like that and like mm-hmm. so yeah World War Two films uh something I know about where Eagles Dare or at least I parrot it and act like I know it um <laughs> is that apparently where Eagles Dare is one of the first if not the first um 
World War II films uh, about an entirely fictitious event. Like up until that point, it was either based on events or based on stories that were purported to be true at the time. This is an entirely fictitious um, story. In fact, this entire movie was made because Richard Burton wanted to be, be in a picture that Elizabeth Taylor, his then wife's two sons could watch him in. The, either any of those other films he either died or his kids were, or the kids weren't allowed to watch him. So he approached the producer, Elliot Kastner, asked him if he could do some superhero stuff where he doesn't get killed at the end. <laughs> uh, the producer then con, uh, consulted uh, Alistair McLean and uh, had him write this movie basically on it. Yeah. It's uh yeah it's it's one of those movies that like has a quote unquote PG rating but would probably be at least PG thirteen now. Oh, it would definitely be PG thirteen now, but yeah. I think it's it could still be PG now because of how comical the action is. Right. I didn't see it. I I hadn't seen either of these movies before the podcast. That's my experience. <laughs> Obviously, the two movies are connected by the lead actor, Mr. No Name himself, Clinton Eastwood Jr., as well as the director, uh, Brian Jeffrey Hutton. However, the movies were also almost connected by another actor. Ingrid Pitt uh, was supposed to have a part in Kelly's Heroes after appearing alongside Clint Eastwood in Where Eagles Dare. However, the role was cut and she was supposedly informed literally as she was boarding the plane to Yugoslavia for filming. I imagine that is a very like uh, Casablanca style thing, like <laughs> like the 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 plane is spinning up and she's got a guy in a trench coat, you know, from the movie. He's like, "You're not going to be on that plane." <laughs> Some guy just runs up with the phone on a tray. Call for you, ma'am. No, 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 no. It would be a telegram. It'd be a Western Union telegram. <laughs> it would be very cinematic. But yeah, why don't you? Uh, run us through Where Eagles Dare. So Where Eagles Dare is a 1968 film written by Alistair McLean, as I previously mentioned, and directed by Brian G. Hutton. Alistair McLean has mostly written spy thriller novels and historical fiction, many of which became movies. Uh, also specifically, he was very well known for these very complicated whodunit plots. So like he was a bit formulaic, actually, at the of a writer. However, Where Eagles Dare is his most regarded film and the only one that uh, Aaron has apparently ever heard of. Uh, McLean was a World War II Royal Navy veteran and seemed to write what he knew. Brian G. Hutton, besides directing Where Eagles Dare and the other film, actually, Kelly's Heroes, is known for Wild Seed and Night Watch. So not too much other things, very much a bygone filmmaker that doesn't get a lot of love so to speak yeah uh, mclean mostly wrote like submarine stories or navy stories so he seemed to at least draw from experience the plot synopsis of where eagles dare goes as such during world war ii uh, on the eve of the planning of the invasion of Normandy, a British aircraft is shot down and crashes into Nazi-held held territory. I believe it is Austria. They specify in the movie. I can't remember now, though. The Germans capture the only survivor, an American general, and take him to the nearest SS headquarters. He has full knowledge of the D-Day plans. 
The British declare, decide that the general must not be allowed to divulge any details of the Normandy landing at all cost and order Major John Smith to lead a crack commando team to rescue him. Amongst the team is an American ranger, played by uh, Clint Eastwood as Lieutenant Schaefer, who is puzzled by his inclusion in an all-British operation. When things don't go according to plan after a parachute drop, uh, things are all not what they seem in Where Eagles Dare. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in a little more reading, just on the Wikipedia page, apparently Clint Eastwood thought the script was stupid and like <laughs> was really freaking confused by it and just gave away the majority of his lines to Burton. So that's why Richard Burton's character talks all the damn time because Clint Eastwood just didn't want to bother with learning the script in a sense. Yeah, this movie uh, does have a lot of dialogue. Which is interesting because it kind of like bills itself as this, you know, action and adventure film. You look at the, you know, the, the, the cover art or the, the movie posters for it. It's like, it's obviously very much of the times. It almost actually harkens back to a 1950s production in terms of like aesthetic and casting and really filmmaking. Cause in 68, there was a lot more avant-garde filmmaking going on that uh, I think both you and I agree that in the creation of this film, it felt very formulaic. Yeah. I'm talking in terms of shot composition and like the progression of things, like everything was, we have to show this to show this, to show this, to show this. Like it was just everything got shown. And I think that's a bit of a detriment to the film overall, especially nowadays with a more modern sensibility. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say that this, I mean, at least for me, Eagles dare kind of like, Hmm. Harkens forward a bit because it's so complex and there are like, well, I'm not, I'm talking about separate the plot from the actual filming of the movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The plot fine. The plot is, you know, is respectable and, you know, has its great twists and turns, but the movie, the way the, 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 the score and the cinematography is done and uh, certain choices in regards to, uh, German uh, speaking roles um, is very much old Hollywood. It's very much a film that is like, well, we can't just, you know, show them here. We have to show how they get here. Yeah. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Um, There were a couple shots. There was one shot uh, when they're on the cable, like skipping almost to the end of the movie, when they're on the cable car, like riding it up. And there's a shot like behind Clint Eastwood's head, like up at the uh, castle. That was pretty cool. But other than that, yeah, it's well shot and it's competent, but it does follow that formula. It very much feels like a studio film, which I mean, reading that apparently Burton just requested the studio and the producer to find a film for him kind of makes sense. They would just get all these key players together. These, you know, these just uh, like working <laughs> you know, working movie studio. I was reading that like other actors like really took an interest in getting into character. The guy who played the Gestapo officer, which is. It's a uh, Darren Nesbitt. Yeah. So Darren Nesbitt actually like met with a former Gestapo officer uh, mm -hmm. to like get into the role and like make sure he wore the uniform and had the, the, the acting right. Yeah. For the character, which 
is really interesting because nowadays you would almost like expect that to be required by a movie studio. Like there's so much method enforced by studios anymore and directors anymore to make it more real that you have these things like, you know, Clint Eastwood just showed up and he was Clint Eastwood in this movie. But Darren Nesbitt was like, no, no, no. I want to be like the best good, like SS officer I can be. Yeah. It almost feels like some of that stuff is even just put forward in like um, press releases. It's like, hey, look at how our actors preparing for this role as part of like the media cycle. It's just like, hey, you got to do this so we can put out a blurb about it. I don't know if it's that. I think, you know, you have movies like John Wick where, you know, even 10 years ago, uh, the actor wouldn't take all that time, except for very rare occasions, to prepare and get the firearms training to be able to do all those action sequences to the degree and the level of expertise that they do in those films. The only thing that shoots immediately to mind is something similar is Tom Cruise doing like three months dedicated uh, close quarters combat firearms training and like basically learning how to be a hitman for collateral. Yeah. And like he himself chose to test himself by going into a crowded mall dressed as a UPS guy delivering packages and no one recognized him. Yeah. I think uh, also you hear a lot, you know, with Christian Bale, obviously, and his more like the physic, the physicality of his method acting, where he's losing a bunch of weight, putting on a bunch of muscle, like losing it all again, or like. Well, that used to be the 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 exception. Now it seems that it's more of the rule. These actors yeah. putting themselves through these specialized training and like, I, it's almost like we're in a new age uh, era of at least film acting where method is enforced if not actively encouraged all the time something that i definitely noticed in this movie was like on the fight scene on top of the cable car they have those kind of like i would call them like almost old man in an action role fight scenes where you see them a lot in bond films where they'll like they're fighting as they're like holding on to each other in death grips for like five seconds and then one of them just like breaks free and kicks someone in the teeth or like headbutts them. Well, again, that's, you know, harking back that this is an older style film. Uh, also, I wouldn't be surprised if that was due to the fact that Richard Burton was drinking like four bottles of vodka a day on the yeah. set. <laughs> Apparently him and Eastwood derisively called this movie where stuntmen dare as an inside joke between the two of them because of how many stunt actors were needed for this film. And it's really interesting, like um, the cable car jump that Richard Burton does later on in the film uh, to set the scene. There are some traders that are trying to escape down the cable car, which is the only way in and out of the, the, the castle, the Schloss Adler. I'm calling it right. Yeah, it's the Schloss Adler. I believe so. If not, I'll edit it out. and No one will know. <laughs> the Schloss Adler um, is only accessible by this cable car, like I mentioned. And so these two um, traitors are trying to escape and um, Richard Burton climbs down uh, onto the, the roof of the cable car and like on the way down, he has to jump into the one that's coming up or jump on top mm -hmm. of it. And it was apparently something I actually did. The, the actor, the stuntman who did that lost three of his teeth doing it. Oof, ouch. Yeah. So like, you know, it's interesting, like 
obviously it was a bit more of the Wild West, so to speak, no pun intended with Clint Eastwood being in this film, where, <laughs> you know, the consideration for even the stunts were not put in place. It's just like, well, this is what you're supposed to do and you're just going to do it. We're not going to be like, well, how do we do it? Let's train to do it. Let's let's put the time and effort into making sure we do it well and it looks good. Because I think mm-hmm. we can both agree that the hand-to-hand combat scenes and the, you know, the the death-defying cable car fight scene kind of comes off as boring. Like you said, because these actors are basically just hugging each other really angrily looking. <laughs> yeah, it shows this age a little bit. Uh one of the another one of the things from that cable car fight is that uh within within the fiction of the movie, the character blows up that cable car with just straight dynamite and is unconcerned that that's just going to shear the cable and send everyone to their deaths. You know, also there's they're pretty cavalier about a lot of shit in this movie. There's I also think that dynamite was free back then because they have a <laughs> fuckload of it. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if honestly all of their packs were just full of bundles of dynamite. But then like apparently, I mean, dynamite's not all that rarefied. Uh, if we're anything to go by Fight Club as a empirical source of information. But the, the OSS and the OSA, uh, they or the OU, whatever it was, basically spies that this would be them doing. They used a lot of dynamite. They blew up a lot of bridges. They blew up a lot of things behind enemy lines. And they carried a lot of dynamite all the time. Yeah. There's, for a stealth subterfuge mission, there's a lot of stuff that gets blown up. Well, I mean, you're conflating stealth with quiet and, you know, subterfuge with quiet. <laughs> they just have to confuse the, the Nazis enough to not look at them. They know that they're on a timetable. Uh, yeah. I mean, they make mention in this film that they're they're going to be able to slip in and, you know, assume roles in here because this is a major Alpine training area for the this part of the German army. So, like, Everyone's coming and going all the time. And if we just say we're the right people, people aren't going to question us, which is Mm. actually a scene that Richard Burton does later on. They have infiltrated the Alpine village that the Schloss Adler, uh, you know, gets serviced by. And they're in a bar, which is a a really neat scene. I actually enjoy it um, because there's a there's a part where the movie cuts away and the character knows what's going on, but you as the audience don't know what's going on just yet. Where Richard Burton's character tells Clint Eastwood's uh, uh, Schaefer character exactly what is happening. Like, why you are here in this almost all British operation. Mm-hmm. But you, as an audience member, don't get to learn that information until much later. But yeah. in that bar scene to get a guy to leave their table because he's talking to one of their actual contacts, but he's being like really chauvinistic is the word, but also like super flirtatious and like handsy. And this other, this third Reich officer is like, you're a disgrace to the uniform. And he's like, I'm such and such, such and such. And you better watch your tongue when you're talking to me. <laughs> and then he says to Clint, he's like, well, he better leave us alone. Cause I just told him I was, you know, uh, the brother of like one of the high ups in the third Reich. It's definitely, I mean, I think it's easy to draw us 
pretty straight line between like this movie's bar scene and the bar scene in Glorious Bastards. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this is something that like because this is such an old film. Like uh, specifically, the the cable car scene has been used in Return to Castle Wolfenstein and um, mm-hmm. the new uh, old the Old Blood expansion to Wolfenstein: The New Order, where yeah. A lot of the the visual references of this film are present even today without people realizing the reference to them. I mean, even like climbing up, you know, ropes up into the castle is in Wolfenstein. Um, There's an ent- the entire escape sequence in a Call of Duty game is based on the the, the escape sequence from the, the the town in the bus in this movie and where Eagles dare. So, I mean, it's influences are felt, but not known. It's very much like a, not very much like a, but it's kind of like when Quentin Tarantino is making all these visual references to old French noir films and like the actual mm-hmm. like composition of the shot is a direct reference and homage to that, but you don't have to have seen it to enjoy that shot or get that, that sense out of the movie. Like, you know, those levels in Call of Duty or in Wolfenstein are good in and of themselves, but they're not wholly unique. Obviously, they're they're drawing inspiration from them. But speaking of good shots, uh, I would also feel bad if I didn't point out that this uh, movie has, I think, our first match cut. No, the movie. no. Remember the last episode? Oh, yeah. Well, all right. Of the canonical episodes <laughs> of match cut. This is our first this is our first match cut. What's the match cut? They do that that thing where like the movie opens on the plane and then cuts back to them receiving their briefing. Yeah. And when Major Smith stands up from the briefing table is it cuts to him standing up in the plane and readying the parachute. Gotcha. Also, the opening is like a great opening to this film. It like kind of sets the tone for the film. Like you got mm-hmm. this really heavy orchestral score that has kind of like a, a heavy horn section going on. And like, as this, you know, very clearly Nazi German plane is flying over and you're know, like, what's going on? You know, what's happening? Who, who, what, what, what is this? You're kind of, you're thrust right into the action, but then the movie is like, no, 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 no. You, you can't have action just yet. You gotta, you gotta have exposition. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things that I think is sort of something that gets tossed around like all the time now in modern movies where it's like, all right, we're jumping back in time. We're jumping forward. We're, you know, showing you this setup thing to, you know, to get back to the payoff. Well, I think this film does it very, very childlike in a sense. Like they do it just because they don't know another way to get this information out there. And that they maybe wanted something slightly more interesting than just a like a briefing room telling you exactly what's going on and who the players are. So let's start it, you know, start it in media's res, but then very quickly go back to, we can't, we can't spend too much time in the present because then people will get confused because honestly, like I've seen a few like documentaries about editing and all that. And like, Audiences of the time didn't understand film language and editing techniques the way that more modern audiences have been acclimated to that just because of you know decades of doing it. Um, yeah. Like when you edited a film back in the day under the studio system that this still feels like a part of, you had to say uh, Jimmy Stewart was getting out of a car and going to a door. 
You would show a shot of him getting the door handle of the car. You would show an exterior shot of him closing the car door. There would be then a shot of him walking to the door. And then another shot of him opening the door to the to the place that he was going in. And then a shot of that door closing. Rather than him just getting out of the car and cutting to the interior of a building. Because we can assume he opened the door. Like, we know that. Um, <laughs> yeah. A famous example of this is uh, Hitchcock's Vertigo, where it is just this rote uh, editing style done by the numbers where every scene follows this pattern. You see everything from the beginning to the end. And again, this happens in this movie. They were never given a li- lines of dialogue to explain things and to show, you know, that actions happened off screen. If, if someone needs to do something, they are told to do it in the movie, and then you see that person also do it. Example, like when they tell um, the local contact what she needs to do to help them, you then see her go and do that. I think, I think it's definitely one of the – It's I think it kind of marks the – point at which that started to change because they do have that like all right let's cut back to the briefing and cut back forward again and i think that's you know sort of what we have in the modern times now but yeah then they also do go back like i remember now what we were we talking about when we watched this we did watch this a little while ago when they're securing the cable car platform like we see shots of clint eastwood like walking to the door, then a close-up of him at the door and him barring it and him yeah. walking back. And so they, it, I think it's that turning point because they have both of those, like in the same movie, it's like, all right, we're going to give the viewer a little bit of credit. And then we're not. And then I, we I, are. I, I don't think that's quite right. I feel that they were told or they were just slaves to the script and the script was written in such a way that, uh, the book, I wouldn't be surprised, is like starts on a plane and then it cuts back to a briefing. Like, well, this is what was, uh, you know, thinking back, I re- remember mm-hmm. that briefing. You know, at, at the time, like, it's just, I think it's more of a uh, aberration than it is them trying to do something artistic. Okay, yeah. With that in media's res. I think it was like, well, we don't want to start the film off slow. So we had the briefing scene first, but let's put the plane uh, parachute intro scene, but not actually the the jumping out of the plane. Let's just have the plane flyover be the intro and then go over the main players in the plane and then cut back to tell you who they are. Yeah. Also, they need that long plane shot to put all the credits over. (laughs) That's true because they didn't have, uh, you know, the post credits or, you know... (laughs) Yeah, definitely watching this movie, I fell into that trap a little bit of like, oh, there's 40 minutes, you know, in this movie left, but, you know, subtract 10 for the credits. And then it like goes all the way to the end. And I'm like, oh, right. All the credits were in the beginning. Yeah. And then they're just like the end. <laughs> Finn. Uh, actually, in Kelly's Heroes, they do like inset portraits of the actors, like at the end in the credits, which is well. I mean, even in, in the two years between the films, a lot changed in filmmaking, uh, especially mm-hmm. the entire landscape of Hollywood was changing. So this uh, this movie it's it's it feels overly long. When I watched it with someone else, when I first watched it, it was like I was just in it. 
But I think once you know the twists and turns, which is why I'm avoiding saying a lot of them, yeah, it takes a lot of the tension out of the film. This is not a film that I feel can be enjoyed a whole bunch because of how ingenious the twists are. It feels like the twists are the reason to come to the film. Yeah, I would agree. This is a mystery film, unlike Agatha Christie, like where you want to watch it over and over again to see if you can parse it all out. It's like, oh no, these persons, they're that because the script told them to be that. It wasn't like they had any intrigue or, you know, who could it be? Like, you know, there's never scenes where it's like, okay, this person was with that person and we trust this person, but we don't know about this person. So the fact that they're together and this person is gone, like you you can't do any of the mental math that I think as an an enjoyer of mystery films, you want to do. It's like when I was watching uh, Murder on the Orange Express, the the most recent version with Kenneth Kenneth Branagh, I'm like trying to figure out, okay, who could the murderer be? Like based on the things that Hercule Perot is seeing in the body and who is present and who isn't present and who has these skills and who doesn't have these skills. Yeah, definitely a movie like Snatch, like maybe, you know, top tier in rewatchability, but you get something new every time you rewatch that film where this one it's like, okay, once you know the twist, it's kind of like... Well, I think that that's also a benefit to modern screenplay writing is that the dialogue is so much snappier and so much more clever. This is just so matter of fact. It is just, and again, Mm -hmm. because Clint Eastwood gave up so much of his lines to Burton, you have scene after scene after scene of Richard Burton just talking to people, which is fine. He's a great actor. He's a, you know, he was a legend of the stage and the film and a legend of the the drunk. (laughs) (laughs) It was like Richard Burton, Richard Harris, and um, that guy that died making Gladiator that we've talked about before, Oscar something or other, right? Yeah, I I remember the conversation. Oliver Reed, Oliver Reed. (laughs) I think specifically those three guys actually used to hang out together and get drunk a lot together. (laughs) Uh, Old Hollywood. I mean, it probably actually still happens, but... But they have better personal trainers. (laughs) True. Also, like, three days of prep for a shirtless scene and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things that they don't like talking about as well. So, you know, a part of me wants this film to be remade in, like, a modern style because I think they could do the script more... Turn it more into an action adventure film rather than an adventure thriller, which is kind of what this is. Because mm-hmm. again, once I'm having watching it again, there's no stakes to a lot of the action. It's not like oh oh da 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 da. It's just like well, of course they make it out. He's the top star, which I have trouble with anymore. It's like I was watching John Wick three in theaters recently, and I was like, oh, I know that Keanu is going to make it. For the most part. <laughs> yeah. We, I'm, I'm glad you reminded me of that because we need to talk about it later off of the podcast. But I, I do want to get your thoughts. Um, I would say if you were to give it, it has a pacing issue. It, it takes too long establishing so much. Like um, going back to the thing I was talking about, like you have to show them do everything. Like we literally see them set up booby traps that they use 40 minutes later, it's like, we didn't Mm -hmm. need to see them do that. You can just 
imply that they did it with a line of dialogue like later on when they're climbing up the cable car it's like we only got so many sticks of dynamite after we we booby trapped that road yeah and like okay now we know that they booby trapped a road you you're, you're better setting up of Chekhov's guns to go off rather than mm-hmm. showing us loading and hand loading the ammo for Chekhov's guns and putting it in the magazine of Chekhov's <laughs> gun to then fire Chekhov's gun later. <laughs> it could be snappier. I, I also wouldn't mind seeing a modern remake. Clint Eastwood's still around, right? Well, I think we should we need to get Scott Eastwood, his son to do it. Yeah. It's basically Clint Eastwood's clone. As far as Clint Eastwood's part in this, I was like watching again, knowing that the quote unquote German accents were coming, which is not German at all. It was, I was a part of me was kind of relieved because I don't think that Clint Eastwood is like ready to take on a German accent at that point. And it may have just been horrible. Maybe he did try it on set and they're just like, we can never let this see the light of day. No, that wasn't, that wasn't something that they did back then. Like uh, you have Robert Shaw in the battle of the bulge, just being Robert Shaw. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean like, you know, our SS officer, Darren Nesbitt, I, I don't think is German. No, he's and, not. You know, at least but again, the, put on a German accent. The, the the reason I brought that up is because of how different that was than the norm. Uh, a title mm-hmm. build actor actually taking the time to get into the role, to learn and to do an accent and do it well. Like I didn't know that he was Darren Nesbitt of England or wherever he's from. I, he seemed pretty German to me. Yeah, um, that ramen looking hair (laughs) but i mean did you have fun when you first watched this movie yeah definitely like riding riding the roller coaster of like he's a double agent he's a triple agent quadruple agent you know yeah there's definitely a scene where you're like what is going on and i think even (laughs) clint eastwood's character is like what (laughs) this is as confused as i ever hoped to be um yeah and that like I had, I had a good time the first time through, and then rewatching it for the second time when I was like ready for all the twists and turns. You know, I think I I still enjoyed watching it the second time, but I think a third time would be a bit much because it just it doesn't have that rewatchability that maybe a more modern interpretation would. Yeah, there's not a lot of meat on its bones. It is this film is this film. There is nothing more to it. You could you can catalog it as you know like visually interesting and you know a good first watch but like it doesn't stand on its own compared to other world war ii films especially modern world war ii films where there's a lot going on there's characters there's you know more there's morality put at play like this is just lighthearted. it's not hard it's not hard it's not challenging to the mind in terms of uh like in terms of engagement, it's challenging in a whodunit sense. Yeah, there are they're not dealing with deep moral issues or what is it to be a spy and to play two roles? <laughs> yeah. What is it to put this actor into harm's way? If, if they say expecting him to be tortured, like Yeah. Alright. Interesting. You know, something that I, I will give this film credit for, and also the next, the, the other film, Kelly's Heroes, is 
you know, you can't do a film to this degree as you could back in the day, just in terms, you know, of how expensive extras are anymore, of how expensive mm-hmm. getting all these guns anymore. Like, they could just go to Switzerland or Austria or any of these places, and the National Guard armories would just be full of MP40s. They could just, like, <laughs> MP40s for days. We just we just got to shoot blanks, and that's all we need. We just need a whole bunch of blank 9 millimeter ammunition, and we got all the guns we need. We just rent them for a while, and then we put them away. And if we break them, oh, so well. It's not like, you know, the massive undertaking that even Saving Private Ryan was, where they had to you know, find Higgins boats that were still working and, you know, get actual working M1 Garands and BARs and, and, and machine guns and all that stuff. And there's still little things like, you know, in the background of the invasion, you can't see the invasion fleet because, well, that would be expensive to CGI map that. And we definitely can't get those destroyers anymore since they're all scrapped. Yeah, definitely something that I want to bring up in the next film, but, uh, as far as like how much of this in a modern remake would be CGI, especially a lot of the, you know, cable car scenes approaching the cat, like the entire cast would be CGI. I think it was, what do you think it was in this movie? A miniature or a matte painting? Uh, there was actually a real or, castle that they used. Oh, uh, Hey, even better. <laughs> I, 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 I believe it was a real castle. Yeah. They used the, Hoffenwerfenberg Castle for the interior and castle shots. I think it was a mat for the actual location because while it is like elevated, it's not like on the side of a mountain impossible to get to. Right. Yeah. There's also, uh, there's a great scene where they first get their glimpse of the castle and there's like this little musical stab of like, da, da, da. And it's like this painting of a castle. It's like, all right, uh, sure. Shocking, I guess. I think one of the biggest detriments to this film is the the use of its main orchestral score, as in like the the overture, where that's mm-hmm. the only score there is. Yeah. It's like it would do well with a more modern score or or something going on with it where it was just changing up every little bit, but Every single scene is bomb, 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 It's it leaves nowhere to go emotionally with the music, which is something that yeah, uh, I'm actually having a problem to go back to with the John Wick films. Like their usage of an actual score and motif, I think, is hurting the films overall. Because I think the first one was a way more creative film with its usage of a few licensed songs and then sparing use of an actual score. But that's a discussion for, you know, another time. <laughs> so, I mean, do you think we have anything else to say on this film? I think we uh, they can get our feelings on it uh, before the, the the conclusion, but... I think that, that covers everything I've got for uh, Where Eagles Dare, so... We'll uh, take a quick break and we'll be right back with uh, Kelly's Heroes. All right, welcome back. Moving on to Kelly's Heroes. Kelly's Heroes is a 1970 film written by Troy Kennedy Martin and directed again by Brian G. Hutton. Troy Kennedy Martin is best known for this movie, uh, the Schwarzenegger Belushi action comedy Red Heat, 
and the original Italian job. Brian G. Hutton, we already discussed. Um, as a director, his highest rated movies are Kelly's Heroes and uh, Where Eagles Dare. Both at the 7.7 on IMDb. A respectable 7.7. 7. Um, so Kelly's Heroes is uh, takes place in the midst of World War II, where Private Kelly, formerly a lieutenant, is interrogating a captured Wehrmacht intelligent colonel. After loosening the colonel's lips with some brandy, Kelly learns of a bank vault 30 miles behind enemy lines in the town of Claremont containing 16 million in gold bars. For reference, about $230 million today. With uh, three days of rest and relaxation coming up, Kelly convinces his platoon to help steal the gold. Uh, before Kelly can lead his troops away from the camp, however, they're joined by Supply Sergeant Crap Game, Beatnik, Beatnik Tank Commander Oddball, and his uh, platoon. Shockingly, 30 miles behind enemy lines is not an easy place to reach, and the group adds and loses men along the way. Uh, once they reach Claremont, all that's left between them and the gold is German infantry, three Tiger tanks at the 1st SS Panzer Division, some very thick vault doors, and a very enthusiastic Major General Colt who is running to congratulate them on breaking through enemy lines. So uh, what is your experience with this film? You, you didn't know about it, didn't know it existed? I knew absolutely nothing about it. I think I had heard the title possibly at some point, but I might just be confusing it with Hogan's Heroes. I mean, it's an easy confusion to make. Um, yeah. I can't remember exactly how I fell into this as well. I think it might have been a TV tropes hole that I fell into of like, oh, uh, like, you know, just click on the hyperlink, click on the hyperlink, click on the hyperlink. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And the, oh, it's four in the morning. Shit, I needed to sleep. <laughs> so, yeah, Kelly's Heroes. Uh, I think it opens a lot better. It, well, it opens really strong. Both these films open strong. Mm -hmm. I like that uh, song that they have for it uh, that plays as Kelly is driving through the German-occupied town with the, the intelligence colonel in the side seat of a Jeep. He's just... Yeah. Acting like you belong in the middle of a German <laughs> field base. And and then when he's found out, just runs a guy over. I mean, he's a Nazi. What do you care? <laughs> oh, I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying it's not subtle. As far as reusing music, though, they do reuse that song three times in the movie. One in the opening, again in the middle, and then uh, over the credits. Well, I think that's I think it's used appropriately each time. Yeah, it also does not consist of the rest of the score. Right, the The rest of the score is actually very, uh, it builds enough tension. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a lot of fun play, play in the score. Um, I like the way that this movie sets up a very cynical tone of World War II, because this is, you know, 1970. It's only been 20 years. And, you know, these these are people that were the kids or the, the nephews of the veterans that fought in World War II, where some of them were old enough to have served, possibly. Yeah. It's also, you know, kind of the rise of the anti-Vietnam movement, and I think it's, you know, of the time. Think... Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I think that I was just going to say that I definitely think that that influenced this film's tone on war in general. Yeah. Even a and... relatively well-liked war as World War II. Mm-hmm. Definitely the the military is a bunch of incompetent morons, you know, 
was not maybe the attitude during World War II, but much more the attitude during the Vietnam War. Well, I think I, I definitely think this is again harkening to Vietnam sentiment is that the commanders of the troops right. are incompetent, greedy, self-important uh, looters. There's their captain of the unit that uh, that I think they're second armored or second armored division or something like that or second infantry division um, is constantly stealing things. <laughs> Yeah, like the first introduction to him, he's in a boathouse while his men are on the front lines holding the pocket, and he's measuring a boat that he's about to commandeer to take back to Paris, and he's asking, um, "Is it Telly Savellis, Big Joe?" Yeah, he's yeah. asking Big Joe if he thinks that they can fit this thing into the hull of a B seventeen <laughs> to get across to back to New York, while. Big Joe is trying to tell him, like, we're about to be overrun by German artillery. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, our own artillery is still coming down on us. And by the way, you're not getting that R&R in... Uh... Oh, yeah, in the town. In the town. Which, uh, there, there's a, a mild-running thing in the beginning that uh, Telly Savellis has the, the, the Zagat's guide to every town they're going through to see if there's, you know, good, any good hotels or any good... Um, uh, restaurants left for them to relax in because they're a frontline unit. And what happens is they're on the front line up until it, they're about to push through. Then they get rotated back and these fresh faced guys get to take the town and get to take the girls and get to take the hotels and all the good spoils. <laughs> and and his boys just get three days at the rear. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that that was an actual thing. I can't remember if we talked about this or this was something I came across like in looking at this movie, but I guess a lot of U.S. troops would actually carry around like Michelin guides because they had like maps to the town where maybe maps weren't as forthcoming, you huh. know, for the for the troops. You must have come up with that in uh, research on the movie. That's actually really interesting. The, yeah, the, the Zagat's guide was used <laughs> as an actual like p- uh, tool for war for better directions. Yeah. Also to find. Oh, no, to find excuse those... me. It wasn't Zagat's. Why am I saying Zagat's? It's the Michelin guide. Yeah, you know they got to find those those good Michelin rated hotels because they were you know maybe still standing. Uh, the tone of this movie is definitely like outside of the Vietnam era incompetence of the higher ups. Um, it's it's got more of a slapstick tone sometimes than uh, uh, slapstick is a bit hard. Uh, a bit uh, a bit strong because it's never like because war is still portrayed as war yeah it's just this is very clearly for the most part not a real version of war but then again it's always it the movie takes time to remind you that like there are real consequences for what they're doing you know like while there's something like when they after they have requisitioned all the gear to do their illegal you know uh, recon patrol to the the town of Claremont to get the gold. They're bivouacked at a place, and an American plane strafes and blows up one of their their all their all their uh, mechanized uh, equipment. So they now have to hoof it on foot. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know that's ta- that's taken very seriously. Like they all could have died, and they all know that. And well, <laughs> but of course, it was one of our own. They'll probably give them some medals. Yeah. It, it, it more hints at slapstick than is outwardly or like outright slapstick. 
Like the the scene that kind of made me think of this. Was, I would say it's comedy. Yeah, it's but, very, it has a comedic tone. Yeah, so like when they hand when um, Private Kelly hands Mulligan the uh, gold bars payment for dropping the mortar strike, he like almost like takes it and like almost goes cross eyed at it. You know, well, I think so that's the, the actor just staring on it. It's like ecstasy of gold kind of thing. It's 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 like. People are blinded by it, you know, mm-hmm. which is fitting that Clint Eastwood is the titular Kelly. Then and then, you know, later in the movie, some guy steps on a landmine and dies. And th- that entire scene is played very serious that like, you know, they were quiet. They're not that far from a German, you know, a German position. And now they have to very quickly get through a landmine, uh, a minefield. And that person that was is dead. And another person dies because they were with them when yeah. the Germans finally come up on them. And they have to leave these two friends of theirs behind. This movie does a really good job in the, the beginning of establishing like kind of the pecking order in a sense. And also like the the camaraderie that these guys have with each other with just the way they talk, the way they, they you know, they bullshit really well together. Yeah. It's something that it's uh, you don't you didn't see in a lot of war movies before or since up until something like a generation kill where it's literally just a road movie of them bullshitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, th- I think this movie handles both of those tones really well. Like the comedy is there. It's enjoyable. Like Donald Sutherland. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and I then- mean, he's he's called oddball for a reason. And he is an oddball tank <laughs> commander. Like to keep that keep that positivity. Don't don't harsh. It's all about the, the, don't be sending out those negative waves, Moriarty. <laughs> Look what you did. So that's one of the closest to like a, a slapstick moments is uh, Moriarty and uh, Oddball and his tank and his uh, three tanks, his Sherman tanks that Kelly has enlisted as armor support to meet them at a place mm-hmm. at a bridge. Has, find, has reached the bridge that they need to cross as a rail bridge to get over, that the American Air Force is blowing up in the day and the Germans are rebuilding at night. So if they get there early enough in the day, they can get across it before it's blown up by the Americans. And so they, they reach it, they're, they're recalling it, and it's like, it's all about that those positive waves, Moriarty. And then <laughs> a second later, a bomb blows it up that's dropped by an American plane. And then Oddball says, it's about... <laughs> You were sending all, all those negative waves, Moriarty. <laughs> Which leads to um, Oddball and the rest of them finding a cafe and calling on an unsecure line back behind lines to uh, an engineer bridging unit to enlist their help to build a bridge. <laughs> There's also, yeah, that comedy moment of like, where am I going to find a hundred guys just like that? Turns around, there's a hundred guys behind him. Well, yeah, because the the regimental band has been practicing. It's like, but that's, you know, that's, again, the cynicism of this this movie is showing through. It's like, why, like, they're in an active war zone. Yeah, they're behind the lines, but why is the regimental band there at all? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they in England? Why are they in France? Yeah. It's like, well, we need them for the parades, of course. Of course. When we win this whole thing, we're not going to wait two days for the band to show up. Right. Um, yeah, I think that cynicism is definitely refreshing uh, after like just how straight-faced uh, where Eagles Dare is about everything. Mm-hmm. 
where this feels like someone who wrote this was in the military. <laughs> also, you know, on the theme of hundred guys just in the background, this uh this movie's extra budget and just like the amount of like military vehicles and people and stuff yeah. all in the background is nuts. The the amount of yeah, it's like uh you know, so one of the most more recent big budget war movies was Fury. And you know, mm-hmm. Fury had a, a large budget, large crew, a lot of extras. Even that feels small compared to this. Yeah. You know, like the, the actual scope of it all. Like I, I'm I'm curious where the locations they were that shot that where they shot for this film. I wouldn't be surprised if it was, you know, south of France or somewhere in Spain. But all the the tanks, all the ar- the armor pieces, the 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 different half tracks they had, all of it was still in working order. Obviously, 1970, a lot of the stuff is still in service with governments, you know, in their National Guards or what have you. And so, again, it was a lot easier to put on this massive production compared to something like a Black Hawk Down, where to get those Black Hawks, well, you got to get go to the U.S. State Department to get permission to use those Black Hawks. Whereas, you know, then there were thousands of Sherman tanks. So even if they, they couldn't rent them, they could have probably easily bought them surplus in still working order. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm looking. Okay, so yeah, in the IMDb trivia, uh, Yugoslavia was chosen as a location mostly because earnings uh, from previous showings of movies there could not be taken out of the country, but could be used to fund the production. Another reason was that in 1969, it was one of the few nations whose army was still equipped with operating World War II mechanized equipment, both German and American, which simplified logistics. So they were able to just go to Yugoslavia because Yugoslavia didn't have the money to modernize in the 1970s yeah. and just do a a World War II film. Mm-hmm. And I think they used a lot of like uh, military personnel like as extras. So they just had like That's tons of people. Common. So I, did, I yeah. guess it's historically common now as well. It it pays off because I think a lot if you were to remake this movie, you know, shot for shot in modern times, like obviously you wouldn't be able to get some of these vehicles anymore. Many of those vehicles, I was looking at some of them and it's like, I don't know of a single working version of one or two of those vehicles in existence. Yeah, I guess uh, the Tiger tank like wasn't even a Tiger tank. It was a. Uh, their ex-Soviet armor T-34 tanks covered uh, by specialists of the Yugoslav army for the movie. That makes sense. The turret was too far forward. But it was it, that's the same kind of thing that I wouldn't be surprised if Spielberg looked at this film to see how they did a lot of things for Saving Private Ryan because he did a very similar thing with his Tiger tanks in Saving Private Ryan. They were based on T-30, T-38s or whatever. Yeah. But some of those some of those shots, especially where there's just columns of guys going like way back into the distance, like nowadays, those would all be just CGI, you know, or they just wouldn't do a shot like that. They wouldn't right. do a large, a long crane shot like because they don't have the time budget or the desire to establish that, you know, there's yeah. definitely something that is lost by the ages because you can't do these big productions anymore just simply because of how logistically infeasible it is, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. saving private Ryan, you know, it's a great movie. It feels like there's a big war going on. Like you can definitely sense it, 
but if you watch it too many times, like I have because of Kurt, um, <laughs> you you see the cracks in the armor of that movie. Again, like I brought up earlier, the the invasion fleet is missing from the entire uh, Omaha Beach. Um, also, the the size of the Omaha Beach assault, while big in the movie, is actually really small. That's not a lot of beach, despite the fact the beaches were huge. Yeah, you know, one of the the closest you get to what you're talking about the you know the column of men moving through constantly at the the uh, the paratrooper uh, bivouac place. Um, that's a similar scene to this, but this move, the, but Kelly's heroes has like four or five massive scenes with hundreds, if not thousands of extras. Whereas yeah. that's one scene where they have all those guys and all those extras moving through just one, because that's all they could afford to do. Probably. Right. Also, I think there's a lot of practical effects in this movie. Well, obviously, Obviously, they're not computer generated, but, you know, with tanks crashing through walls or, you know, over stone fences. Yeah, you definitely get you get a feeling of destruction that you don't get in a lot of modern films, because if it is a real tank, well, they're not going to risk damaging it by driving it through a wall. (laughs) Whereas, you know, these there's hundreds of them in reserve and they're working. So they have people on hand that know how to fix them and they have parts to fix them with. So if we break one, they can fix it easy. It's like um, the Dukes of Hazard TV show. They had so many of those Dodge chargers on hand and in the motor pool. If they would ruin a jump, like hit it wrong, didn't hit it right, but they wrecked the car. Uh, we got a hundred more because they weren't expensive cars. You can't do that today because that same Dodge Charger is now a $70,000 car. <laughs> and they broke all the original ones making the first Dukes of Hazard. Something like that. But like, um... <laughs> That was something that happened uh, between the two John Wick movies to bring it back to John Wick again. Like in the first <laughs> one when he has his car... You know, they couldn't really damage that car. Then in the second one, they just roll that thing. Just toss that car like it's nothing because all of a sudden they have the budget to. Well, hold on there. Um, There's a lot of movie trickery that can go on with that stuff. Like that might be an entire mock up. Now, I'm sure that they they did wreck a car, but like it probably wasn't the same car as the first movie. And it probably wasn't uh, like wrecked to the level that we think it was. Yeah. Because they, they, they've had to become more creative doing that stuff because of these rare, the rarefied commodity of these vehicles. Yeah. I think, but I think John Wick, you know, that movie, like this movie, has a lot of practical effects. I think they did damage at least one real car because they had the budget for it. And the second one after the first one was such a smash. Um, Lots of, yeah, lots of buildings get blown up in this movie. Grenades <laughs> free. I, I assume I mean, again, this movie feels like an actual war is going on mm-hmm. because of the amount of wanton destruction portrayed in the film. Like, you get a real sense for maybe a version of what war is. Like, when they're going through that town that they're shelling, that they've paid the uh, the, the guy off to shell, um, 
like, obviously they're not shooting real artillery. They're just blowing up, you know, controlled demolition charges as they go through and all that. But they're still blowing stuff up. Like, again, I'll bring it to Fury. Um, There's only one or two buildings that they destroy in Fury. And that's it. Whereas this film, there's like multiple scenes where they're, again, uh, the, the, the final showdown, they're driving through walls, they're, they're blowing things up with satchel charges, they're bringing down buildings, they're shooting doors with tank guns. Because of the, to a degree, because of the safety we have in films now, you don't see as much anymore. And to the other, the other side of it is like, well, it's Yugoslavia during the Cold War, things are cheap. Mm-hmm. There's a it's a good comedic moment when they blow up that vault door because, you know, they do the the, of course, Clint Eastwood walk down the dusty alley or, you know, street to confront the enemy. It's a direct it's a direct homage and reference to his success as the man with no name in the Leone films where there's literally a Leone or an Inero Marcones inspired musical bit playing as him as oddball Clint Eastwood uh, Kelly and Big Joe are walking towards the last remaining tiger tank defending the town of Claremont yeah complete with spurs jangling sound effects added in but they basically tell the guy like hey you know like we don't want to be here you don't want to be here we're dying for god knows what reason all you got to do is turn this gun towards that door and half of whatever's in there is yours. And it basically cuts just like smash cuts to the tank blowing that door open. It's a really like good comedic moment. Well, no, I think the best part about it is, is like, you know, you have this very, the actor who is playing the tank commander is like, they found this guy and they're like, he's the perfect German (laughs) tank commander. Yeah. Complete with facial scar. Facial scar blue eyes, blonde hair, uh, just looks the part. And <laughs> when they tell him that he's guarding a whole bunch of gold and he he can get an equal share if he just shoots it, um, then his, his one uh, work really well-working eye just goes wide and then it's the smash <laughs> cut to the door getting blown open, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty note perfect. And, you know, it speaks, it speaks well to the fact that they, you know, can really do comedy and drama. Uh, I don't want to say perfectly, but, you know, they, they hit the notes they need to hit in both of those tones and balance it pretty well. I find it interesting that we have Don Rickles in this movie as crap game, uh, Mm -hmm. playing a mostly straight guy part. Yeah. He, as the actual famous stand-up comedian, doesn't have a lot of comedic moments. He's not the source of comedy exclusively. He himself has some funny bits and he has a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that I really like about this film is all the all the, the, the platoon have pretty established characters, even though they might not have a whole bunch of speaking lines. Again, owing to the fact that these feel like guys that have been fighting together for a while. Yeah, like you get the sense that like Cowboy has a backstory. There's the guy he always calls Barbara, which is Babra. <laughs> you know, yeah, they, they all get their like little bits. Um, but yeah, Don Rickles has like a, a couple moments where he's like, you know, trying to pay the guy to carry the gun for him. It's like, well, I'll give you 50 bucks. No, I don't have it on me. 
fine, I'll give you a hundred bucks. No, I don't have it on me. You know, or like, yeah. what kind of landmine is it? The kind that blows up. How should I know? But like, um, but the other thing about the, the, uh, that like gun carrying part is like, that's also showing like his character. He's like, he's lazy. And the, the rest of the platoon is kind of calling him out. And they figured he was going to be like this mm-hmm. because he's trying to be like, Oh, let's cut and run. You know, it's going to be too hard. And it's like, you never faced hard before. Like this is easy. Yeah. We're in it for ourselves now. <laughs> but owing to this film's more modern sensibilities is the, um, is again, the editing techniques in this film are much more engaging to a modern viewer. Uh, you yeah. have that scene where uh, it's the second use of the uh, diegetic music, or not diegetic, but the the, the theme song, mm-hmm. and it's where Oddball has brought with him the entire engineering corps and the army band, <laughs> and he's hit, hitting them up at the rendezvous, and like it's a little tense because you know Kelly wanted to keep it between his platoon, and he was a little wary bringing Oddball in, but he was all right because. Oddball seemed like the same kind of guy because Oddball hates officers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason Oddball isn't doing anything is, oh, they've been lying that their, you know, their tanks are, you know, out of commission and their officer is dead because he stepped on a landmine, which <laughs> knowing Oddball, maybe he didn't step on a landmine so much as get fragged. <laughs> uh, I don't know if Oddball would go that far to just out and out murder, but. Maybe maybe if the officer did something objectionable or horrifying. Well, if he's an officer in this world's in this movie's version of the the army, it's entirely possible he did something objectionable that the <laughs> troops didn't like. That's that's very true. So uh, it also seems that like him and his guys married gypsies. <laughs> yeah, they definitely have a lot of women hanging around. Uh... Where, wherever I mean, the women are, like, because obviously the main platoon, like Kelly's platoon, complains that, like, oh, we're not getting any women. Like, you know, we got a couple movies and magazines, but they make a point out of it. But apparently any women that are going to be had, you know, Oddball and his platoon are getting first crack at it. <laughs> well, no, it's usually the fresh faced uh, new new guys on the line that get them. Uh, mm-hmm. I really like how the Big Joe is like the, you know, the 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 fatherly sergeant of the, the man, the father to his men type. Um, yeah. And he's like, he doesn't like the idea of Kelly's, you know, going AWOL and getting the money and all that stuff. He doesn't want Kelly to tell him about it. And he's like, I'll shoot you if you do kind of thing. And you get the sense that's a real threat. Like, don't fucking do that. <laughs> yeah. We need to keep our heads, heads in this game for this war. Yeah. Um, don't, don't shit where you eat kind of thing. So yeah. Uh, Telly, uh, Telly Savellas uh, was great for that role. He definitely plays the uh, the, uh, the the character well. But the, the the final straw that convinces him is when they're just shit on by their own the by their captain for one more time. Yeah, they're told to stay right where they are rather than go to Claremont. They're told to uh, they're going to get some movies and they have to, but they have to stay right here for three days. That's their R and R. Yeah, and he's like pulling away with his stolen boat, and he's like, "Don't forget the punishment for looting is death." As he is looting, it's it's very subtle that uh, yeah that message right there that Aesop. Well, it's one of those you post on shitty movie details. <laughs>
No, I think uh, totally this film just works to a modern sensibility that, you know, we're definitely a war weary country right now. We're, we're tired of it. Uh, yeah, the people fighting it aren't to blame, but the, the, the battalion grade people, they are to blame. And, you know, let, let's, let's take the piss out of them as much as possible because they are shown as incompetent lick spittles that are just unable to make any headway against the Germans. And th there's a great moment where, you know, Cur uh, General Colt uh, is, you know, complaining about balls. That's how you win a war. And he thinks he's some kind of patent where, you know, and it's interesting, you know, knowing history, there were so many generals or, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, lower, like one-star, two-star generals that had big inflated egos of themselves thinking that they were some grand strategist. Yeah. You know, famously in the Pacific, the, the general, the, the Marine general in charge of the operation at Peleliu fancied himself like a MacArthur character. It's like, not even MacArthur was as good as MacArthur thought he was. And you think you're <laughs> half as good as MacArthur. Right. So, you know, like, I definitely, uh, to me, knowing a little bit about history, it's refreshing to see a a general not be portrayed as like this taciturn chest master, like grand strategist type. He's an idiot. He's a blowhard. He doesn't know how the fuck to run a war, and he's incompetent. And the only and you know he gets all riled up because of oh these these go getters with a lot of with a lot of gumption are using really weird call signs, but they're breaking through the lines. <laughs> I've kept me my medals and, you know, pin one on every single one of them. Yeah. So, uh, there's another great, um, kind of smash cut in this film right after the night of, um, oddball meeting back up with Kelly's platoon and, uh, bringing the entire, you know, engineering core with them because there's no bridges and they're going to build a bridge. Um, mm -hmm. it just cuts, right to this massive battle with the engineers building the bridge. <laughs> yeah. And it's like mostly yeah. built and Kelly's talking with uh big Joe and, um, and crap game and all them like, okay. Uh, uh, oddball lets them know uh, the other two Shermans, they've been knocked out. We only got this one left. Everyone hop on. As soon as the bridge is done, we're going over it. We're not waiting for the rest of these fools. Yeah. It almost, it almost seems like, uh, uh, it may or may not be this. I have no it's a hard fact to back this up, but it kind of feels like, well, we don't have the budget for necessarily like an all out action scene. So it's like, we're going to destroy two of these tanks off screen, you know, and then we'll talk about it. I don't know. I, I definitely think they had the budget because they've already they, you know destroyed other pieces of equipment. They destroyed other towns. They destroyed tanks they, later in the film. Yeah, I think that's true. It, it was a definite stylistic choice to have this big battle scene going on in media's res to then, I mean, maybe it was a longer sequence in a, a different cut of the film. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like today where we have, you know, Oh, 17 hours of footage were left on the cutting room floor of every single movie you've ever loved. And you're never yeah. going to see any of it. We don't know if there was extra footage or what they filmed and didn't film just the people that made this film do. Yeah. For me, it reminds me of that, you know, story you hear from the first Deadpool movie where it's like, oh, well, he forgot his guns in the cab because they didn't have the budget to, you know, well, put more, all those guns in. That's the... a more modern issue. Like, 
they were filming in a, in a country where they literally made a whole bunch of money already to put towards the, another movie's production. Mm-hmm. So they were going all out with this. Yeah, that's true. Like I said, I have no facts or evidence to back any of this up. It's all supposition on my part. But I think it works. It works in the movie, like, you know, to... I mean, how much do we really want to see in this film, like, the an actual lead-up to a battle scene? You know what I mean? And, like, mm-hmm. an actual big-budget military scene. It wouldn't fit this movie tonally. Yeah. And I think, like, you know, like, they make their choice with their one action scene being the confrontation in the town. And I think, like, also... I mean, there's there's a lot of real tension because they, they, they've illustrated earlier that, you know... Anyone can kind of die for the most part. Yeah. Uh, that's what the whole scene in the minefield is for. And the, the, the two Shermans getting knocked out off screen. Like, yeah, like maybe some of these guys are going to make it, but I mean, they're going up against three tigers and, and, you know, and support infantry. Yeah. And even it's kind of foreshadowed a little bit because like Kelly never told oddball, you know, about the tigers until they were like almost there. Well, until they were right there. And yeah. Then, and then Oddball's like, no one ever told me about no tigers. <laughs> They've been chewing us up in the open country. But then well, he, this isn't the open country. <laughs> yeah, he convinces him by telling him, like, you're in a town. You have all the advantages on your side. And then, like, yeah, the, the tiger is an open country tank. We got, we can do some things. And, like, there's a, there's some real tension scenes where they're, where Kelly is leading the Sherman through the the town to get some sneak shots on the tigers just to, you know, give themselves every edge they can against them. And one of the tigers goes into action right after they blow up one of them. And uh, it's like, it's like chasing them down, but the Sherman being so much faster is able to escape. It's like, it's really cool because historically something like that could have occurred. Yeah, because the Sherman would have been a better urban tank. It's yeah, it's good writing. You know, it's got that it's got that believability. It makes for a good watch. You know, you set up you set up the final scene so that you're playing to your strengths. Yeah, it just it felt real. It's like, you know, we're not going to fight these guys fair. It's war. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the ending scene where they're still they're not 100 percent loaded into, into a deuce and a half that they've got. Uh, and the the general cult is on the outskirts of town, and so what they do to slow them down more is tell the the the, the French villagers that oh it's it, Dugal's here, Dugal's here. <laughs> <laughs> like he's not even in this war. Dugal, he ain't even in this war. <laughs> but again, this is perfectly playing to a blowhard like you know General Colt's ego. He loves a parade because he gets to mm-hmm. be the hero. He's done none of the work and he gets all the benefit. But yep. the guys that did all the work, they actually got the reward this time. They each make out with about 800000 something dollars. Yeah, something like that. Which, I mean, sounds like not a lot. But then again, this is 1944 money. <laughs> $800,000 went a long ass way. It's uh, it'll set you up pretty nice. There's some there's some debate in the IMDb trivia section about like how much this gold would weigh, like what the volume of it would be. Some people, you know, took some time to figure it out. And uh, gosh darn it, this movie just doesn't look very realistic in that light. 
So what, they're saying that the, the amount of gold that they found in the center would not have been enough or would have been too heavy or what? I think a little bit a little bit of everything is just like, well, there's not enough gold. Like these are weird sized bars. It wouldn't they wouldn't have been able to move it all out. Like it would have been worth a different amount. You know, it's stuff that who cares about any of that? <laughs> stuff you uh, can work out for fun is a good math exercise, but you know, it doesn't affect your viewing of this movie. So yeah, the the closest, you know, in tone that I feel that this movie has to a modern contemporary is something like Three Kings. Mm-hmm. But even Three Kings is more serious and somber. Yeah. Especially towards the end. Whereas this film is very much like our guys won. Uh, the the war's over them. Have a good night. But it makes sure to hit the notes like, you know, this is anti-war. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the reason that Donald Sutherland was chosen for MASH was because of Oddball. Because MASH was two or a year or two later. Mm-hmm. And Oddball is very much like it's it's Hawkeye with less sarcasm and more just out zaniness. Yeah, I I haven't watched Mash, so I'll I'll take your word for it. But one last thing, I do like that Oddball uh, trades and buys from the German tank crew, <laughs> buys the uniforms and the tiger from them. <laughs> And Moriarty is like, I don't get why you bought this piece of junk. It leaks everywhere. Like the uniforms I get, baby. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it, it's just, it's totally in character for those guys to have that relationship and for him to pay the German tank commander to buy the tank. <laughs> you know, fool and his money are soon parted. Anything else to add on Kelly's heroes? No, I, I think uh, in our discussion, it's probably come out uh, for the, the conclusion, but uh, we'll go right into the conclusion. Um, I say Kelly's Heroes is the better of the two films. Uh, I think we both enjoyed watching it more when we were watching it together. Uh, yeah. I think uh, Modern Sensibility, it's it's a better watch for a modern audience because the language of cinema it's using is closer to where we are today then where Eagles Dare is a very much, uh, I would watch that like in a, a film group of people that love old films or yeah. like in a film history class. Yeah. I, I definitely agree that Kelly's heroes, you know, was, was the better movie. And I don't, I don't want like, I don't want it to always be like, Oh, well this one is more modern. Therefore it's better. But like, I think that's the only, like that's the lens that we have. Like, as products of our time it's like hey we're accustomed to watching a movie a certain way and i don't want to say that like where eagles dare is bad because it's not bad it's just of its time more than kelly's heroes which i don't know i think kelly's heroes comes from a more earnest uh, desire to make this film whereas it feels like where Eagles Dare is like, well, contractually, Clint Eastwood is obligated to do this movie, so he has to do this movie. And, well, the producer said he wants this script for Richard Burton, so Richard Burton's getting this script. It, yeah, it kind of comes across as like, 
well, we threw these darts at a dartboard. They landed on World War II action, you know, adventure and Clint Eastwood. So we put those things together and here's what we got where Kelly's Heroes is more of like, hey, you know, this is like the cultural attitude at the moment, like very anti-war, anti, you know, leadership. Here's an interesting story we can tell that also, you know, works like they were making it have like they were bringing those modern feelings about war like you know modern at the time into this movie instead of like you know here's here's the you know balls that fell down the plinko board and here's the movie (laughs) that came out but yeah I, i think that's similar to what you're saying where you know that attitude comes across more in kelly's heroes where it's like hey we have something to say well, you still get movie like movies like where Eagles Dare, where it's like this definitely feels like it's contractually obligated. You know, there's other things being made uh, that are similar to this, and so we got to make our version of it. Or you know, if we don't make this, then we lose the option on it, kind of thing. It it definitely feels like Eagles Dare, even though it's a you know, it's a beautifully shot film. It's a I, I, I do like films on film because they have that grainy, gritty texture. Like you don't get that feeling from modern films when you watch them on mm-hmm. uh, either of these films. You both have a sense that they, they made sure to choose the right film stock for the kind of film they were making. Yeah. And it just, it's such an of the times thing that is enjoyable. Um, but it, other parts of where Eagles Dare felt uh, by the numbers. Yeah, where Eagles Dare kind of feels like, like in today, it would be a sequel to something. You know, it's like, okay, you know, they're making the next James Bond movie. Here's where Eagles Dare. Because it could almost be a Bond movie, you know. I wouldn't be surprised if that was probably the intention that Burton had at the time, as he kind of wanted a Bond-esque thing going on. He did ask for like his spy intrigue movie. Also, yeah. uh, Cartwright Jones sounds like a Bond girl name. Yeah. <laughs> but um, didn't you make a mention at the end of Where Eagles Dare? Like when, uh, you know, uh, Richard Burton's character is telling Schaefer, like, uh, you know, uh, I'll let you know next time we have one of those things. And then Schaefer's like, next time, leave me out of it. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, yeah, it, I definitely think there could have been a series of films with, you know, the Richard Burton character and the Lieutenant Schaefer character kind of getting into these, you know, intrigue plots, at least in a book form. I could definitely see that happening. But yeah. I think the movie didn't know the tone it wanted to take. And it took the tone it did because, well, it's a World War II film. We have to have this tone. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Kelly's Heroes is like, well, we're doing a World War II film, but we're really kind of saying something about the current, like Vietnam right now, and yeah. uh, we want to we want to have this look at it rather like. And again, a lot changed in two years in Hollywood with the studio systems and with the kind of films that were being made and greenlit. I mean, I think seventy one is when uh, Scorsese makes Mean Streets. 73. So three more years and you get Mean Streets. The, the other members of the, the Hollywood Brat Pack, uh, I think that's what they're called, uh, which was Scorsese, Spielberg, and um, 
George Lucas, respectively. There was a few other directors that I cannot, uh, I think Coppola maybe, um, were all making films. I think, uh, when do you get Platoon? Okay, that's 86. That's way later. But there's a, there's another, there's a name for the the film school kids it, like the whole thing that changed in the 70s is that's when you had filmmakers that had gone through film school making films now whereas before it was just you know it was either stage directors or you know just people that were editors like there was there was a method to it you didn't just become a director mm-hmm. um or you did because you had enough money uh interesting note the the where Eagles Dare came out the same year as the John Wayne movie, The Green Berets, 68. So put that as like a, a parallel. Like you got this kind of by the numbers World War II film coming out at the same time as a movie being made about the current ongoing conflict that U.S. troops are in. Now it's inherently a propaganda film that is mm-hmm. pro-Vietnam War. But again, neither like... Regal's Dare is not saying that World War II is bad. Whereas two years after the Green Berets, we get Kelly's Heroes. And then I think a year later or two years later, we get MASH. Those are anti-war films in the extreme of the times. With MASH being a more clear-cut anti-war film. Yeah. Uh, oh, you are right that it was it was called the Brat Pack. There's a, a bunch of Brat Packs apparently. But Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas, and Francis Ford Coppola. So I literally named them all without even meaning to. <laughs> you got them. You got them. But yeah, I guess, uh, do you have anything else? No. So I think, uh, would I watch, would you watch either of these films uh, again? Uh, I would watch Kelly's Hero with some people who had never seen it before. But would you do the same with Where Eagles Dare? Or would it be someone having to show you it or request to see it with you? If if it sounded like something that someone wanted, I'd recommend it to them, but I probably wouldn't watch it again. Yeah. I also just watched both of them again today, so I may be a little less ready. I personally don't think I would rewatch Where Eagles Dare, like unless it was someone who was like requesting to watch it with them. Kelly's Heroes, yeah. I might turn that on sometime if I could find my copy. <laughs> I'll uh I'll send you a copy. Express post. Thanks for joining us on the Match Cut Podcast. I have been Matt. I have been Aaron. We'll see you next time when two Uh, 30-year-old men (laughs) talk about what it's like to be uh, girls in high school. Something that we are intimately aware of. (laughs) Yeah, come come on back for that. Um, In the meantime... We are in Twitter, in Twitter, we're on Twitter, in spirit. I haven't posted anything. Maybe I'll start doing some teaser images or something. Yeah, uh, or maybe give me the the, the the login so I can log into it. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's at MatchCut. Uh, you can email us at matchcutpod at gmail.com. Are and we I'm going to figure out this iTunes, iTunes thing. Okay. I was going to yeah. say, people keep asking me that. I'm like, well, I'm on Spotify. Like, that's the other big platform. So, <laughs> But uh, until next time, enjoy, watch some good movies, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>